Welcome to the Beauty Construct, where we explore beauty in the context of wellness, empowerment, and resilience. The podcast you're about to hear, as all episodes of this season two, was originally streamed as a live conversation between the Salvasa interviewer and the guest thought leader. We hope you find the conversation relevant, provocative, and inspiring. Hello and welcome. And thank you for being here this evening. My name is Chris Karras, and I am the president of Solvasa. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the third talk in season two of our speaker series called The Beauty Construct. If you're new to Solvasa, I encourage you to check out season one of The Beauty Construct. It's free to download on Spotify, the Apple Store, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am really excited about our speaker tonight. Shanna Hussein is a registered dietitian and nutritionist and has worked in the nutrition field for over 20 years. She is the author of the book, Fast to Heal, a five-step guide to achieving nutritional peace and reversing insulin resistance. And in her book, she details the science and power behind intermittent fasting, something we're going to talk more about tonight. Like most dietitians, she recommended strategies for much of her career that failed her clients long-term, as many conventional nutrition guidelines do little to heal the underlying hormonal drivers of chronic illness. Shanna also runs the popular Finding Nutritional Peace Challenges each season for those who want to implement the concept she teaches in a group setting. She'll talk more about that at the end. She also offers personalized virtual sessions to those wanting more help. Shanna, welcome to the Beauty Construct. Thank you, Chris. It's a real honor to be here. And we are very happy to have you. So why don't we start at the beginning, which is always a good place to start a story. You've been an RDN for over 20 years. Tell me about how the field and your thinking in particular has changed over those 20 years. Yes, I wish the field has changed more than it has. But unfortunately, in the 20 years that I've been working as a dietitian, I haven't seen the recommendations change a whole lot. I think as a whole, I'm not here to bash the dietetics profession or the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, but they as a whole, want to standardize nutrition for any one disease in any one disease state, where I believe in more of a personalized approach. And I'll give you the short version of my backstory that kind of has led me into where I am today. And my life has completely changed over the last year, not only with my health and my own life, but the way I practice nutrition therapy and the recommendations that I give. I have worked in the nutrition field for over 20 years. That's going to age me, but (laughs) it's been a while. And for most of that time, I worked in conventional medicine for about 15 years on and off. I work mostly as an outpatient dietitian. So that means that I see patients or I saw patients primarily when they came out of the hospital or after they had some sort of an event, or if they wanted to better their health, they would come see me in the office. I didn't work a whole lot in the hospital setting. And I did that. I I work primarily in weight management, ironically, and I will say I didn't see a ton of progress giving standardized approaches. I would see progress for a couple of months with most of my clients, and then they would just kind of fall off and I'd lose track of them. And unfortunately, sometimes I would see them in the community. I was like, oh, shoot, whatever we were doing wasn't really working because they had kind of yo-yoed back to where they were. And that was always frustrating as a professional. And then I transitioned more into a health coaching role and I did a lot of employee health and I wrote wellness programs and set up all sorts of different environmental things within, it was in a hospital setting, but for the employees to try to keep their environment more healthy. And I did a lot of wellness assessments as well. And it was during that time where I started to question whether or not what I was doing was really making much of an impact because I did wellness assessments for the same employees over and over and over. And I just didn't see a whole lot of progress and my own health. I had some issues with after I ate certain foods that were highly recommended by the government and highly, you know, the main source of calories recommended by the standard guidelines, I just wasn't feeling well. And I 
I was starting to have some health issues myself. So I started questioning some things. I changed my own diet and I saw a lot of improvements and it was kind of backward from what I was recommending. And then in 2016, my husband and I have three children and our middle son, who is now 15, got very, very ill and had a lot of digestive issues. And that was a whole nother story and a whole nother book. But he was very ill for three years and none of the standard of care approaches and conventional medicine really helped to get him well. It was during that time I did a really deep dive, not only into nutrition, but other environmental factors such as you know, metals and molds and water contamination, chemicals that are put in foods, you know, you name it. I was looking for some sort of trigger that could pinpoint back some of his digestive issues because nothing made sense. He went from a very well child to a very sick child within a couple of weeks. I actually had to go out of the conventional system to find help for him. And I'm happy to report he's been thriving for about two and a half years now and has caught up. He has absolutely no symptoms and, and is doing really well. But while I was doing all that research, I questioned even more so um, some of the, the recommendations that I was giving. And I actually quit the nutrition and dietetics field. I, I decided to quit my job and I went and I was a substitute teacher in the schools for three years. And I still do that every once in a while, but it was just I didn't feel comfortable making the recommendations that I was anymore because I saw it with my own health. I saw it with the health of my family. Lots of other people around me were just starting to make changes that differed from the conventional methods. And then I started work in a digestive health clinic in 2000, the very end of 2019. And I really loved my work there, but they wanted me to put together, they didn't have any sort of a weight management program. And they wanted me to put something together. And I thought, Oh, you know, like, I just, I don't know, I, I just, it's very difficult to keep giving, you know, to keep doing things as a practitioner where you don't see results. So uh, I decided to do some research and I stumbled across Jason Fung's book, The Obesity Code. If anybody does intermittent fasting, they've heard of that book. You know, he was basically the pioneer who brought fasting mainstream. And I remember reading his book and just thinking, why wasn't I taught these methods as a practitioner? They're pretty simple to implement. And I mean, my jaw would just drop. And I was like looking for people around me like, hey, like you should learn this. You should, you need to see this. And so it made so much sense to me. I started fast doing intermittent fasting myself, not really for weight management, but to see if some of my other health issues could be helped by it. And I was pleasantly surprised that my body composition changed for the better, even though I wasn't really working toward that. And I saw some other healing as well. And then I decided to do a small pilot program at the clinic that I was working at with about 20 people just to see. I'm like, okay, I hear all of these great stories about fasting, but I'm still really new at this. And I really want to see how it works for my clients before I completely change the way that I recommend and do nutrition therapy. So those 20 people, I couldn't believe it. I was blown away. I, they did so great. We started in October. We started our pilot program right before Halloween. So it went through Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and right up in after New Year's is when it stops. We were going through all the stressful times, all the holidays, and they did fabulous. Like not only did they lose weight, but so many other great benefits like sleeping better and aches and pains going away. And I had this one lady who was extremely high blood pressure, which I didn't know until, until we did the pilot program. And she's like, yeah, I, I was told to go on blood pressure medication, but I didn't like how it made me feel. So she's just like crazy high blood pressure went within normal range within 12 weeks all of these amazing benefits. And so at the end of the pilot program, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do this. I'm passionate about this. People in my community started to ask me if I'd coach them on the side. So I started making some handouts and then I had to quit work at the digestive clinic I was at because I couldn't see clients outside of the nutrition clinic and write a book and promote my services. So I had to step back, which is fine because now I have my own business and I see people all over the world. And it's just been a whirlwind of a year because it was the end of January, 2020 that I quit working at the clinic. And then I published my book fast to heal in April of this year during COVID. So that was kind of tricky, but at the same time, like, Hey, people have 
some time to read, you know, they're trapped in their homes. So it was, it might've been to my benefit to, to publish during that time. And then I started to see clients from, like I said, up all over the United States. I've seen them from other countries. And then I decided I wanted to share those stories, those success stories that I was seeing. So I started a podcast called Fast to Heal Stories, where I feature people who have done really well with implementing intermittent fasting and the type of eating that I now recommend. And I also run the challenges. As you said, I do those quarterly, they're 28 days. And it's basically how to implement fasting and how to implement it healthfully and what to eat while you're not fasting. Because a lot of times books kind of lack that information. They will tell you all about fasting and the different approaches, but they might not go too deep into the nutrition. So I just finished up the winter challenge and that's where I'm at now. Like it's, it's been a crazy year, but I have seen more progress and healing with the people that I've worked with in the last year than I saw for 20 years in recommending the standard approaches. So it's really exciting. I'm really happy that you're letting me share my story because I just want to reach as many people as I can because the concepts are so simple and so different from what we usually do as standard. So So let's talk about that because I know for sure that there are people on this call that have probably never heard of intermittent fasting. There are people that are going to listen to this podcast later that don't know what that is. And so, you know, taking a step back just for the sake of of bringing everybody along at the same speed. You know, the traditional, you know, things that you were taught in uh, as you were training to be a dietitian and a nutritionist, juxtapose that to what intermittent fasting is. So sort of what were you trained specifically, which is probably what a lot of people are thinking today might be the right thing to do. And then what is intermittent fasting? Like 101, like just break it down. What does that mean? Yeah, I think people a lot of times get afraid of that term. And I know I was too, when I first started hearing about it and hearing it on the podcast that I was listening to and reading about it and the the nutrition articles that I was reading, not so much the professional journals, but other places, I kind of tuned it out too. I was like, no way, like we can't we can't skip meals. That's unhealthy. We certainly can't skip breakfast. That's the most important meal of the day. So I, it was a long time. It was many months before I kind of wrapped my head around it. But if you have never heard about it or read about it, you can think of it more. I think a lot of people can simplify it and kind of wrap their head around time-restricted eating. That's another way to look at intermittent fasting is just focusing more on the when part of eating and not so much the what part of eating. And that's where we lacked as nutrition professionals for so many years. And I think still lack is just looking at it as only eating at at a shorter window or shorter time frame during the day. And why do you even want to do that? You know, we've been told as nutrition professionals and, you know, standard guidelines to eat all day long, like eat your breakfast from the within an hour of when you get up, eat at least three meals a day, eat snacks in between to keep your metabolism up. And what that's doing is causing insulin resistance in a very high percentage of Americans. And some people can get away with eating all the time. I'm not saying that everyone should be an intermittent faster, but if you have underlying metabolic issues and insulin resistance, then intermittent fasting is a very, very powerful tool and very powerful nutrition therapy. So going back to eating all the time, when you, every time you eat, you stimulate the hormone insulin. And that's really where I focus my education and my therapy around is the hormone insulin. And the hormone insulin is very, very powerful. I do want to say you die without insulin. So you don't, I don't want you to think insulin is a bad thing because we need it. It's what tells our cells to open up and receive energy and to take the energy out of the blood and put it into the cells where you can then metabolize it and use it for energy. But if you're eating all the time and you're eating the types of foods that are high stimulator, stimulators of insulin, your insulin hormone is high all the time from the time you get up till the time you go to bed. Don't interrupt. 
So two things real quick. One is if you have questions, populate them in the Q&A for the people that are live watching and we'll leave 20 minutes at the end to answer them. So go ahead and drop them in whenever you want. The second thing is what's a food that triggers insulin if people don't know? Yeah, the highest stimulators of insulin are ultra processed carbohydrates, hands down, like foods that are very, very high in processed sugars, like a soda would be a really high stimulator of insulin, regular soda, or like an ultra processed like Cheetos or pop tarts or donuts or something along those lines that are ultra processed, meaning that it comes from a factory. It's something that's in in a wrapper and it's very high sugar, high carbohydrate, and it's going to stimulate insulin very, very quickly because carbohydrates and sugars are the highest stimulators of insulin. So sugar and carbohydrates stimulate it the most and then protein and then fat actually doesn't have a huge effect on insulin, which again is backward of what we've been taught as nutrition professionals. So when you eat ultra processed food, and you eat all day long, or say you drink like a a sugary drink or juice or Gatorade, you know, we have kids that are drinking, sipping on juice and Gatorade, sugary drinks all day, you're telling your body to release insulin constantly. Insulin's telling the body to take the energy up into the cells. But what happens is a lot of times the cells have all the energy that they need. And so there's nowhere for that energy to go. And the the insulin's constantly telling your body, take up the energy, take up the energy. It's kind of like a storage hormone. And then if the cells are already packed with energy, then it's like, well, you got to put somewhere. So it's going to put it in the fat cells. And so we just perpetually are storing fat rather than burning it. So really it's, it can be so, so simple when you don't eat for longer periods of time, you keep that insulin quiet and low, and then your body has to look for a different fuel source. It says, okay, I'm going to use the energy that's in my muscle. Thus my stored carbohydrate and stored sugar. When that's gone, then it's like, okay, I got to go somewhere else. And it's going to, it's kind of like a deep freezer in your body, the body fat. It's like your body doesn't want to really go there. It's like, okay, I want the carbohydrate to burn because that's really easy. But when you don't eat for long periods of time, then your body's got to say, okay, I'm going to go get some fat. I'm going to go look for a different fuel source. And then it can tap into that body fat because there's no food coming in. So a lot of times people are like, okay, well then it's just starvation. Like I'm you know, I'm starving myself. But the trick is the difference between starvation and low calorie and intermittent fasting is that you then need to eat enough during your eating window so that your body knows that it's full and nourished. And that's where sometimes people go wrong. It's like, okay, I'm intermittent fasting. I'm not eating for 18 hours, but then they calorie restrict and they don't eat enough and think, and then, and then intermittent fasting can backfire. But if you do it correctly, you can see really great benefits and pretty quickly. And not only for weight loss, but a lot of other health issues as well. So let's talk about, I want to talk about the benefits, but I want to talk a little bit more about if people are curious about intermittent fasting, you know, what does that look like? So you kind of talked about that there's a period of time you dropped 18 hours, for example, where you wouldn't eat. Of course, some of that you're sleeping, so that's good. But then during that eating window, do you eat whatever you want? Like, can I just, can I go out to pizza and do whatever? Like, is it that simple or not? Oh, it's so dependent on a lot of factors and it's dependent on the person. I myself don't promote eating whatever you want in your window. Some people can get away with that, but it's a pretty small percentage. So in my book, I teach you how to balance your meals and how to look for foods that promote satiety so that you're full and nourished and you don't have cravings versus foods that drive obesity, kind of like the ultra processed foods that I talked about before. So it's kind of tricky. If this is what I tell people if they're new to intermittent fasting. So let's step back and talk about a couple of different ways that you can intermittent fast. And I want to say like, there's no right or wrong here. Everybody's different. It's not like I say, okay, every client of mine has to fast at least 18 hours every day. So when I work with somebody, I have them give me their top three goals. And then I look at that where they're at. I say, okay, I ask them, you know, where are you at now? What are you eating? What are your goals? And then we go from there. But if you've never tried intermittent fasting before, I start you at a lower, like maybe 16 hours of fasting. If you're somebody who's done fasting for a while, but are just kind of stuck and need kind of that next step, then I'll give you a completely different protocol than somebody who is new to it. 
But most people will do, like you said, they'll use that sleeping time to sleeping. When you're sleeping, you're fasting, right? You're not eating. Hopefully you're not. I mean, <laughs> we've all heard of the, the night eaters that walk around and, and eat and they don't even know it. But the vast majority of us don't eat while we sleep. So use that as your fasting time. So the easiest way and how I kind of get people into fasting with my challenges is to first stop eating after dinner and then sleep. You know, usually you can get a good 12 to 14 hours of fasting in and it's you know, it's not even like you're skipping any meals and then slowly start bumping the time back that you eat in the morning or into the afternoon, whenever you break your fast with your first meal and everybody's different. I would say probably the most popular protocols would be like anywhere from 16 hours of fasting to 20 hours of fasting most days so that you're not eating during the morning hours and you're eating more into the afternoon and then doing either one or two full meals during that time. If I work with somebody who's very metabolically ill, and I don't want to confuse people or kind of go too far here. But if I'm working with somebody who maybe has had diabetes for several decades, or have had long standing obesity, or have weight cycled for many, many years, meaning they've gained weight, lost weight, gained weight, lost weight, then I'll do a little bit more of longer fast, because that's what's needed to heal that underlying hormonal imbalance. But most people, the most common is somewhere around 18 hours of fasting most days. And then I usually have people do what's called like a feast day, like once a week where you're eating your three meals. So it's very flexible and you can change it up. And in fact, when you change up your fasting protocol from week to week, that will benefit you a lot. And when I work with somebody, I always give them like a four week fasting protocol so that it's different from week to week. Usually I do recommend once people get comfortable with fasting, like one 24 hour fast a week, because that kind of serves as a reset for your body just to go for a, a full 24 hours without food. And another way to think of the healing part of fasting is like when you're not eating, your body can do other things other than digest food. So the moment you start eating, your body stops what it's doing, or at least partly stops what it's doing and has to go and deal with the food that you're eating. So there's a lot of processes that can go on hormonal, like I said, hormonal reset, building, repair, giving your digestive tract a break <laughs> for a while, because a lot of us just don't do that. So it's just we're asking our digestive tract and our digestive system to constantly, constantly digest food, where if you just give it a break for a while, it can do so many amazing things for you. So there's just, just so many benefits. And I don't want people to be afraid of it. Because if it doesn't, you know, if you try it one day, and it you don't make it to the point where you want to, it's okay. I mean, you eat, you break your fast, and then you try again the next day. And it's super flexible. Like, I just came back from vacation and I fasted while I was in the airport because I don't really like airport food anyway. So I did a longer fast on a travel day and then I did more feasting while I was where I was. And then when I came back, I did another longer fasting day because I was traveling most of the day. So it's super flexible and you can change it up from day to day, but don't get overwhelmed and don't think of it as starvation. Think of it as I always tell my clients, it's a nutrition therapy. And usually you get to the point of being obese or having chronic, some sort of chronic illness by overeating or eating too much. And to reverse it, you just have to eat less and eat less often. So it, you know, just to, to think of it in different terms as a therapy and not as something that you're taking away or you have to go without, but just more as a therapy. And when people start fasting or intermittent fasting, the benefits are so clear and real to them, usually pretty quickly that they're like, Hey, what was I so afraid of? I feel great while I'm fasting. I have more energy and it's really not a big deal. It's just getting started that those first couple of weeks while your body's doing some adapting that are a little tricky. But then after that, it's really awesome. So let's talk about the benefits a bit, both, you know, so you see, you, know, you said in your practice, you have people start with, you know, what are their top three goals? And that's kind of the way you work to customize with them. So I'd be curious to sh for you to share with all of us, what are the typical goals that people are looking to achieve and how intermittent fasting can support those. And then the second thing, which I think is, is also quite interesting is what's going on on a sort of biological level. So you might say, oh, you'll lose weight and feel more energy, but there's also some really interesting stuff going on with biology as well. And you touched on it a little bit, but I'd like you to speak more to that as well. 
Yeah. So the biology part of it, I mean, like I said, it focuses around insulin and that that's really simplifying things so that people can kind of understand why we're fasting at all in the first place. But there are a lot of processes that go on. Like I said, a lot of digestive healing can happen when you're not eating all the time. There's also a process called autophagy that happens anywhere. If you're, if you're somebody who intermittent fasts quite often and your body's really adapted, that process can start anywhere around like 16 hours. But for most people, it's more like a 24 hour to 36 hour. And what, what autophagy is, it's like cleaning out and recycling proteins and substances that are in your body that shouldn't be there anymore. So your body, because it's not digesting food, it can go and look for, you know, your immune system is heightened and it can go and say, okay, like these proteins are junky. These proteins we can save and recycle and build into new things. This bacteria, bacteria or virus this we don't want here, you know, your immune system is just that much more alert and more potent because it's not you're not having to take all those enzymes and digest food. So there's a lot of processes that go on. And the other thing that happens is metabolically, usually within a couple of weeks to a couple of months is you turn into more of a fat burner than just a carbohydrate burner. So most Americans are very strong carbohydrate burners, sugar burners, because we're eating all the time. And there's always a source of carbohydrate coming in. And we've been taught to eat a lot of carbohydrates, right? We're taught to eat five to eight servings of grains and tons of fruits and vegetables. The whole base of that food guy pyramid and my plate is all carbohydrate food. And then we move up into the protein and then finally some fat. So your body always has carbohydrate to burn, which is not a bad thing. Like if you can, you know, keep that kind of balanced, but you're not really tapping into the fat because you you don't let yourself go long periods without eating. So once you start intermittent fasting, then your body can start to more easily go from, okay, that my carbohydrate sources are gone. Now I can go burn fat. And you just oscillate between fat and carbohydrate burning very easily. Whereas that transition takes a little bit, but once you get there, it's so powerful. Like I said, when I was traveling in the airport, like I got hungry a couple of times, but it's not like I was shaky or hangry. Like I used to be, it's like, I used to be that person who had to take snacks everywhere. I was going to run errands and be like, okay, I'm going to be gone two hours. I better take a snack. And I always had to eat like every three to four hours or I would not feel good. And that just tells you your body is mostly burning carbohydrates because it doesn't know how to go into the fat stores and start burning there. So that was the second part of your question. No, no, it's great. No, the first part is, and I think the autophagy part is very interesting for people to hear about and very much supported in a huge body of science, which is so interesting to me because these principles are known, but translating them to diet, that's kind of like where the system has failed us a little bit. And people like yourself that went out and looked for this information and are translating it yourself. The first question was related to what are the benefits that people are going to experience? And try to be a little bit more specific. Like when you say weight loss, are we talking transformative weight loss? Are we talking maintenance? weight loss? What about if you don't need to lose weight? What if you were an athlete? Like I'm curious in the sort of different lifestyles that people have, how can this potentially fit in? What benefits could they be looking for? Right. Yeah. In terms of weight loss. So the 28 day challenge that I do, I will say like I do a post program evaluation for that. And most people, and granted it's only 28 days. So they lose anywhere from like two pounds to 15 pounds in that time frame, depending on the person. And 15 pounds is a lot for 28 oh, yeah. days, but I've had clients who have lost well over 50 pounds. And remember, I've only been doing this for a little over a year. I know of people, I interviewed somebody on my podcast, who has lost 132 pounds and kept it off for two years. And going back to that autophagy process, because your body is recycling the protein so efficiently during the fasting time, people don't usually struggle with the extra skin and you know, having to do any sort of plastic surgery, like they might have to do like after a bariatric surgery, because the autophagy process is so, so strong. And so your body is like, okay, when you lose weight, you're going to lose body fat, but 
you might have a lot of extra vasculature and extra skin and all that needs to go. So the body is just so amazing that it will get rid of all of that for you during the fasting time. And some of the other benefits is so many clients say I sleep better. And I think there's a couple of things that go on that help that process. Number one, you're not what I teach is I teach don't eat two to three hours before you go to bed. So that just helps that your body's not having to digest food and break that down. So not having to do that, it just frees it up to reset the hormones that need to reset at night. And when you when your hormones start to heal and become more imbalanced with each other, like I work on the hormone insulin a lot, but once the insulin sensitivity heals itself, all those other, like insulin talks to all the other hormones in your body too. So all of those hormone systems start to talk to each other better and, you know, hear the signals and female, like female issues. I've seen tons of women who heal PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome, because that is actually high insulin at its core. I've seen people turn their infertility around. I've seen people's skin clear up. I've seen people's autoimmune issues get better, not always fully healed, but just again, giving your body that healing time, getting all the hormones to talk to each other a little bit better. That's a big thing that I see higher energy. I mean, that hands down, almost everybody sees higher energy. There might be a little bit of a lull when you're transitioning from carb burning to fat burning. Once you're into that fat burning, the energy level is so much better. And I know a lot of people ask like, can I exercise in a fasted state? And that is one of the things, again, you might need to work up to, but I never, I haven't eaten before I exercise in so long because I feel so much better when I don't eat. A couple of other things that happen hormonally when you're fasting is that cortisol goes up and growth hormone go up. And so those are building hormones. So when you do work out, your growth hormone is actually higher, giving you more energy. And when you eat, you you recover from your exercise and workouts better than if you had eaten earlier in the day. So that was opposite of what I thought. So that was really mind blowing heart disease. And then there are clinical trials that show diabetes being reversed in as little as two to four weeks for a lot of people with long-standing type, I'm talking about type two diabetes that have had long-standing diabetes literally can come off their medications in two to four weeks with the help of their doctor. <laughs> I would say go ahead and do this all cold turkey, but just amazing, amazing things. I did want to say too, with the cholesterol and the heart disease, this can help to put those illnesses in remission as well. But I will say if this is something that you wanted to try, sometimes you might actually see a bump up in your cholesterol and your lipid panel. Because when you think about what's happening during fasting, you're tapping into your body fat reserves, right? And you're burning, your body fat is being released out of the cell so that it can burn for energy. During that process, those are triglycerides. So we've had our, we've probably all had our triglycerides measured, but if you're dumping more fat into the bloodstream because you're burning it, your triglycerides might naturally bump up for a while. And then the HDL and LDL cholesterol that you have measured, those are basically transporters of that body fat and of the triglyceride. So the HDL and LDL are basically like little buses that carry fat around in your system. So you might see a bump up in those two. And that that's where it's like some physicians who aren't familiar with intermittent fasting and what happens during the process might say, oh, you better stop this because your lipid panel is worse, but it's usually very temporary and the long-term effects are going to be more positive. So one last question before we open it up, because I see we have several in the chat. Is there anybody this is not right for? Elderly, if you get to a certain age, young kids, teens, people with certain disorders, like what, you know, give me some sort of guidelines to where you would be a little bit concerned or this might not be the right fit for somebody or they need to do more work before they decide. Yeah, I actually have several clients in their 70s who do very well with this. I don't usually give them longer fasts to do, but they can do an intermittent fasting, like a daily fast protocol where they're eating about two meals a day on most days. And it's funny if you in the elderly population or those who are maybe older than 70 years old or so, 
they were probably brought up in the era where we didn't snack a whole lot. And that's just kind of, of, of a foreign concept. And it's something that they started later in life because in the 70s, 60s, 70s, we didn't snack. And that is why we just didn't have the obesity that we do now. I mean, the food system has changed, but now we eat all the time too. So that population, um, that I kind of take on a one-to-one basis, but most people are okay to do more of a, like a 16 to 18 hour fast kids. I don't recommend fasting, especially small children. If I have kids who want to work with me and they they have childhood obesity, I focus more on getting the snacks out, not eating in the evening, just eating those three square meals a day, balancing the meals, getting the processed foods out and getting the sugary drinks out. And usually that works wonders with kids because you do want to make sure that they get the appropriate nutrition while they're still growing. Teenagers, again, are kind of a case by case if they're a little bit older, like 16, 17, 18, sometimes they can do a little bit of fasting. My daughter is 17 and she usually doesn't eat until lunchtime because she has found that it helps her acne a lot to not eat as often, but she's not real active either. So more of the athletic kids I'm really careful with. And usually they're so active that they don't have weight issues. But again, it's like, okay, let's focus on eating full meals, not snacking not eating at night, that sort of thing with teenagers. So not small children. Teenagers are kind of case by case. Pregnant women shouldn't do intermittent fasting either because you're growing another human and you need to eat more often. And even into breastfeeding, I would, you know, your hormones are so different from what they are normally that you just want to wait until you're through with pregnancy, through with breastfeeding, and then you can try picking it up later. And women, women are a little bit different with fasting too. And I have a whole section in my book on things to think about as a woman, because our hormonal profile changes every day. Whereas men is, you know, they, they stay more of the same, but our female hormones are changing daily if we're still in our menstrual years. So there is a little bit more to think about in those terms. I'm trying to think if I, it's mainly the pregnant. Oh, and then the last population I wouldn't recommend intermittent fasting for is anyone who has any sort of an eating disorder that is active. If you've recovered from an eating disorder, this could actually be very beneficial. And I have a couple of clients I've worked with. I have a podcast episode on somebody who had very longstanding, I think a good 20 years of longstanding disordered eating and just having the boundaries around intermittent fasting and changing her diet. She's at peace with her food intake now and it's done wonders for her, but it can go the other way too. It can be, you know, if the rules around it, sometimes people get caught up with if they're if they have an active eating disorder. So that is something you want to heal first, seek there before you try intermittent fasting. Uh, let's go to some of the questions. So the first one, can you talk about hypothyroid and intermittent fasting? Is it safe? Yeah, hyperthyroid, hypothyroid. That can be a little bit tricky because you do want to make sure that you're getting enough nourishment. Now, some people will argue that you have to have more carbohydrates or you have to have more of a focus on carbohydrates with hypothyroidism. But for me, I just, the literature isn't there. So with people with hypothyroid, I usually start them out with, and I talk about this in my book, with like doing an intermittent fast like every other day and see how you handle that and just kind of easing your way into it because it can help to heal the underlying hormonal, you know, thyroid hormone. I'm not saying it's going to cure it or completely reverse it, but it can be helpful. But I have people start with that every other day so they're not fasting for consecutive days in a row. So maybe doing like 16 to 18 hours of fasting Monday, Wednesday, Friday, start with that, see how you feel. And you're going to know if you feel better with that, or if you feel worse, if you feel worse, then it's not worth trying to push through. But if you feel better, even a little bit, then it's something you want to keep going with. Okay. The next one, I'm going to sort of merge two questions together, which is questions about what can you consume during your fasting window, for example, coffee or tea or water. So it, I mean, fasting would imply you can't consume anything, but is that true? Yeah. So I, I promote clean fasting. So what I say is completely okay is water, plain carbonated water that doesn't have any sort of flavor to it. 
black coffee. So yes, you can have coffee and caffeine um, as long as you're not adding like sugar or creamer to it or anything sweet. And then like plain teas, black teas, green teas. I know for myself, I drink cinnamon tea because but I didn't do that for a while. And then, so how you can know, okay, so for four weeks, just do water, coffee, plain tea. So you know what a clean fast looks like. So if you add anything, even if you add like stevia, even though there's no calories in it, or you add a little bit of butter, may or may not break your fast. It just depends on the person. It's so different from person to person, but things like stevia, even though there's no calories that might stimulate a hormonal response because, or an insulin response, because you drink it and your body says, Oh, something sweet's coming. I better release some insulin. And now, now you've defeated the whole purpose of fasting. So I always say, keep those things out. Once you're in your eating window, you can add those things in, but during your fast, do a clean fast for a good four weeks. And so I was talking about how I know I can do cinnamon tea because I don't feel any differently when I drink that. And it actually helps to suppress my appetite. But if you have done clean fasting and then say you add in like carbonated water, that's like strawberry carbonated water. It's not sweetened or Diet Coke. Yes, that's a good example. There's no calories per se that your body's absorbing. But if you feel hungry and you're having a hard time getting through your fast, that means you probably released insulin and it's not worth it to try to keep that in your window or in your fasting time. That sounds good. A question here, should you keep, so let's say somebody's doing a calorie count and they're, you know, let's just say 1800 calories a day is what they're trying to do or 1600, whatever it is. Is the idea that you just move that calorie count to your eating window and, you know, keep it healthy. And that's, that's, is that kind of intermittent fasting in a nutshell? I honestly don't have people cut calorie count. If people are already counting like macronutrients or they're doing a keto diet and they feel well on that, then I say more power to you. Go ahead and keep doing that. But I try to get my clients away from calorie counting because your body doesn't recognize calories. It's not like your body's like, Oh, I've had 1500 calories. Anything more that I eat now, I'm going to start storing. It doesn't. It recognizes foods that are nutritious and filling and are going to promote fullness and satiety. And it recognizes foods or it doesn't recognize foods like the ultra processed foods that drive obesity that are in packages. So if you eat a lot of packaged foods, your body just doesn't get the nourishment. Those foods don't have hormonal signaling associated with them because it's all been removed. All the enzymes have been removed. So your body just doesn't really even recognize it. So you're just going to perpetually be more hungry. So what I teach in my book is for people to always find a healthy fat, like when you sit down to meals and I list all these things out, like find a healthy fat to add to your meal, add a natural protein. And then if you want to do some sort of intact fiber with a fruit or vegetable, those are the foods that we have nutrient sensors for fat, uh, healthy fats. And I'm not talking about processed fat. And again, I go over this in my book, like we don't want to eat a lot of the highly processed fats, because those are very inflammatory. And those would be your seed oils like canola, corn, soybean, sunflower, safflower. I used to tell people to eat those all the time. But now we know that they're very inflammatory, and they actually perpetuate hunger. So some sort of natural fat, natural proteins and fiber. Those are the foods that have, like I said, the nutrient sensors in them so that your body says, okay, like I have enough nutrition now I'm full. So I teach my clients to eat until fullness with those types of foods. And if it takes a while, I'm not going to say you're not going to want to (laughs) binge for the first couple of weeks as you're or overeat, but I just don't, I don't like calorie counting and I don't like people being trapped into that for their life. If you can focus more on the foods that are giving you nourishment and fullness, you're naturally going to eat what you need and stop when you're full. But that comes, it does take a little bit of time. There's a really great book called Appetite Correction by Bert something or other. And it talks all about that. It takes some time, but I just, I feel like women, especially like we're, we've been so caught up with calorie counting for so long. It's hard to get away from that sometimes, but I honestly, I, I have no idea how many calories I eat anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I think that it would be a whole other podcast to talk about where that number comes from. Like, how, yes. what, 
Like, and, and I know it's a big sure. lab that measures it is in Minnesota, but it's that number is not, you know, to, to put so much weight on that number and to actually look and see how that's calculated. I think people would be a little bit surprised. Yeah. So two more questions we're going to get through because we're almost at time. So the first is, I'll just read it. I experience occasional drops in blood sugar after a higher but healthy carb meal, like oatmeal and bananas. Protein helps like almond butter and I get lightheaded and weak. I'm curious how intermittent fasting can help blood sugar level balancing. So it sounds like this person doesn't have a diagnosed disorder, but they experience blood sugar drops after uh, even a healthy carb meal or what they consider healthy, which would be, you know, oatmeal and banana. Yeah. I'm not at all surprised. And in fact, people who there's a new medical device called the CGM, which stands for, it's a glucose monitor, continuous glucose monitor. And oatmeal is one of the worst, the worst foods that drives your blood sugar up very quickly. Not for everybody, but for a really lot, a lot of people. And oatmeal is one of those foods that I ate. I used to eat a lot of, but I just didn't feel well. I don't want to say nobody can eat oatmeal or go down that road, but if you have a lot of higher carb foods in your meal, even though we've been told they're healthy, if you don't have the fat and the protein to balance the blood sugar, you're going to see those rises and falls. And that's where I say going back to the foods that stimulate insulin the most, carbohydrates and sugar and stimulate them the most, then protein, and then fat really doesn't have much bearing on insulin and spiking insulin. So if you don't eat a lot of fat and hardly any protein, you're going to have a lot of blood sugar rises and falls. So it's interesting, like if you ate an omelet with, you know, maybe three eggs and some broccoli and some bacon, where it's mostly in some cheese, it's mostly fat, but you also have a little protein and a little carbohydrate, surely you're going to do so a lot better with that because your blood sugar has leveled out than something like oatmeal and bananas or strawberries, things that we've been told for years to get up and eat all of this carbohydrate. And then we just, our blood sugar is all over the board. So it is really interesting. And that's where I said, I kind of recommend completely different than I used to because of the blood sugar factor. So that's actually, we had another question come in. So we'll do two more. And this is a great segue to that, which is what about a whole food plant-based or vegan diet? And is that something that you support or, you you know, animal protein? I'm just talk a little bit about vegan diet versus non-vegan. Yeah. And I, I feel like vegan and vegetarian have been kind of idolized in the last many decades. I'm not against them. I myself, I did eat a vegan diet for about six weeks or so. And I did not feel well on it just because I I couldn't process all that carbohydrate. It was too much for me. I got a lot of bloating. I just, I felt really low energy. It's really interesting because meat is bioabsorbed a lot more, a lot more than plants are. We have to think about like, I don't want to say plants are not healthy because I don't want to go there. But we have to think about how plants survive in their natural environments. And they have a lot of mechanisms and poisons that they put out to, you know, they don't want to be eaten. So you just need to think about there's different categories of foods. I mean, gluten being number one. I have had, I've eaten gluten-free for gosh, almost five years. That's probably the biggest offender. But there are little pockets and little different types of plants that can be harmful for certain humans. So some people can do well on a vegan or a vegetarian diet, but I will say I honestly see more of nutrient deficiencies in people who don't eat meat versus people who do. Now going into meat, that's a whole nother topic too, because you got to look at where your meat is sourced from and where it's coming from, how the animal was raised. There's a whole huge difference between a grass-fed cattle or animal that's been treated well, not injected with hormones and raised on its natural diet than a meat that's come from a factory farm. So there's a big spectrum there. I don't want to say I don't support a vegan diet because I support whatever makes a person feel well and that they do well on. And that's where I left the conventional system to do more of personalized nutrition. But I will say most people do better when they incorporate meat because it's just 
absorb and utilized a lot better than many of the plants. Okay. So the last question I want to ask, uh, which I think is a nice sort of parting thought, which is, do you agree that our society spends too much effort on correcting illness instead of encouraging wellness? Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I mean, if we, I mean, just looking at where we are as a society, instead of, you know, coming up with the next new drug, that's going to correct things. If we just say, okay, like what is diabetes? Like what even is it? What is at the root cause of this illness? And diabetes is too much insulin. And well, what's causing that insulin instead of finding a medication that's going to stimulate our pancreas to make more insulin and telling people eat all these carbohydrates. How about we take away some of those carbohydrates and go longer periods of time without eating to correct that? So yes. And I, you know, I, I think there's many, many factors at play. Some of it is our society in general, just wanting a quick fix. Our food system needs a lot of work. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. You know, you walk into any grocery store and 80% of the foods are processed and come from a factory and they're made to be very, very appetite stimulating so that we overeat them and that we keep going back for them. They're designed to do that. So some of it is, is just our environment. And then people, you know, feel like they don't have the willpower, but it's just this big perpetual cycle. Whereas if we could actually pay farmers to source our food correctly and grow our food correctly and grow the animals the way they would instead of subsidizing big food corporations. And again, that's a whole nother talk, but there's a lot that's wrong with our food system and that plays into illness. And, you know, just correcting the food system would correct a lot of the illness, but I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah. Hopefully you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. I really do. (laughs) So I want to thank you very much for joining us. It's been a fascinating hour. The time just flew by. And uh, tell us if our listeners who are either live or are listening to us podcast in the future, if they want to learn more about you and your practice, how can they find you? Yeah, thanks for asking. My book is called Fast to Heal. So you can order it that on paper, in paperback or Kindle on Amazon. I also have a digital download and a workbook that goes with it on my website, which is fasttoheal.info. You can go to fasttoheal.info to sign up for a personalized visit with me. And then my group challenges run every quarter. So we just finished the winter one. The spring one, I like to start in March, but we have a vacation in there. So I have to start it a little bit early or a little bit later. They'll be starting in early April. That's on my website and you can sign up for that anytime. I also have a free email course you can sign up for and a free support group called Fast to Heal Nutrition Support on Facebook that I moderate myself. And then my Fast to Heal is my Facebook page. And then My podcast is Fast to Heal Stories. So you can listen to that to get inspired by people who have gone through my programs. And then on Instagram, I'm shanna.husson.rdn. So there's lots of ways that you can find me. There's a lot of things you can do to just check out, you know, the lifestyle that I promote. And like I said, my book is in paperback and it's, it's a digital download. There's also an audio version on my website as well. All right. Well, Shanna, thank you again. And thank you everyone for tuning in and listening. Please join us next month as we talk about clean beauty and the practice of clean washing in the beauty industry. Take care. The Beauty Construct is brought to you by Salvasa Integrative Beauty. We believe the little things aren't so little and want to thank our management team, investors, supplier partners, and especially our Salvasa connectors who remind us every day There is so much beauty in our presence.